Well, aren't you glad that's true? It tells us in the book of Revelation they overcome him, speaking about uh, Satan uh, by the power of the blood. And uh, it's that sacrifice that Christ made that enables us to prevail even today. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ephesians, chapter number 6. Ephesians, chapter number 6, and we begin our reading today in verse number 11. We've been preaching through the book of Ephesians now for, actually, for several months, and generally on on Sunday, either the morning or the evening service, one of those two services will have to do with the message out of this book, and so... We come down to verse 11 this morning, and the Apostle Paul writes, Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore? Take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. In my last message from this letter, I talked about the armor of God in general. In the next message from this book, I intend to start dealing with the pieces of, of armor, each one specifically, but... In between those two messages, I want us this morning to think about the enemy with which we are engaged. Last week I mentioned that it is essential that we know our enemy. Now, by know him, I do not mean simply to be able to identify our enemy. Now, that's important. But we need to do more than that. Not just to identify our enemy, we need to know more than that. We need to know about his nature. And we need to know about his mode of operation. Because if we don't, then we're going to get defeated. We've got to know the enemy, we've got to know his nature, and know the manner in which he operates. There was a time several years ago, I was pastoring uh, just outside of Springfield, Missouri at the time, and uh, all of a sudden there was a great interest uh, in Satan and demons. This was back during the time that Anton LaVey out in California, of all places you might know, a lot of nonsense started there and exists there, but Anton LaVey started the first church of Satan, I think was what they called it. And, uh, and so all of a sudden, across the nations, there was this unusual interest uh, in Satan. And there were floods of books about the subject, and all of a sudden it became a popular theme among preachers. And uh, people devoting entire sermons week after week after week uh, to this business of spiritual warfare and demons and so on and so forth. Well, in my opinion, that went to the extreme. I'm convinced that a lot of people have an unhealthy curiosity with the devil. And I have no intention of turning our study into a series of lessons about the devil. 
He already gets more attention than what he deserves. So that's not my intent. And somebody mentioned a week or two ago about this matter of spiritual warfare, and they were speaking in a positive sense about it and glad that we're considering it. But listen, if your idea is that we're going to really dig deep and stay down long and really get involved in all of this, you're going to be disappointed. Because that's not my intention, and by the way, I think that's entirely counterproductive. Back at that time, which would have been in the when uh, the late 60s, early 70s, I guess it was, and um, I thought, you know, well, I need to jump on this bandwagon, and I need to preach about the devil. And so all of a sudden, I mean, just week after week after week, I devoted our messages to... Sermons about the devil and the demons and so on and so forth. All of a sudden, we had members of our church. I'm talking about good, faithful, dedicated members of our church. All of a sudden, a sudden started talking about things like seeing furniture moving around in the rooms and a whole lot of, a whole lot of stuff. And I, I'm not going to go into all of that now. And let me tell you, we play right into the devil's trap when we get so occupied with him that we're not thinking about Christ. You see, the same things happen in trying to combat air. I remember as a young preacher, I thought, you know, I thought the thing I need to do, I need to teach a series of lessons about all of the cults. And so, you know, I just started one week this one and one week that one, and I mean, I just went through the whole list. And it took me a little while to begin to realize, you know, that's not the best approach in trying to reach people out there. Uh, This morning, for example, if somebody was here, and let's say they are of some religious organization that we classify as a cult, for me to reach them, the worst thing I could do is to get up here and scream and yell and stomp my foot and turn flip-flops condemning, you know, what they believe. Now, listen, they might be wrong about it, but let me tell you, the best approach against any error is to preach the Word of God as it is to people as they are. I don't have to attack somebody else's religion. By the way, there's a time and a place and and occasionally that you've got to say things that are going to offend people. You've got to do that. That's true. But I've discovered that if you just preach the the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's all an unsaved person needs to hear. They don't need to know where, you know, where Cain got his wife or anything like that. that. It's not going to help them one bit. They just need the gospel. So, all of that being said, I want us to think today about the Christian's conflict. Now, we hear about conflict all of the time, don't we? Everywhere we turn, there seems to be conflict. I mean, you uh, turn to the halls of Congress and there's conflict. uh, Maybe on your job, there's conflict in our marriages and in our churches. Everywhere you go, there's conflict. And people are all of the time trying to come up with some some kind of a means or a program or some way in which to overcome the conflict that they're in. But I've got to tell you, it doesn't seem to be working too well. How about you? It seems to me like it's just getting worse and worse, right? Not working very well. You know why? 
Because generally speaking, we're dealing with the fruit of the problem instead of the root of the problem. And that's why, you know, on Oprah's show, she'll get on there. Here they've got one of these real hot-button subjects they're going to talk about. And so all of the women across the nation tune in to listen to what Oprah's going to say about it. And they get in this big heated discussion about something. Listen, I'm talking about topics that need to be addressed and problems that need to be solved. And they get right in the middle of this. What can we do about it? And all of a sudden, somebody happens to mention the Bible, and I mean, they cut them off just like that. Oh, well, we're not going to go there. Let me tell you, until you go there, you'll never get to the root of the problem. Because it all goes back to that place. So, what about the Christian's conflict? What about our enemy? First of all, we need to understand something about Satan's creation. Satan's a real person. He's not just some sort of an imaginary uh, person. He's not someone dressed up in a Halloween costume. He's not just a mere influence. He's a real person. And more than 175 times... He is addressed by a noun or a pronoun in the Bible. He's mentioned in at least 50 chapters of 26 different books of the Bible. So again and again, the Bible affirms the fact that Satan is a real person. Sometime way back yonder in eternity, God created the angels, and He describes them as being masculine, So those little frilly, angelic figures that you ladies have got sitting around, uh, you know, well, you know, it might look nice and what have you, but i got to tell you, angels are masculine, not feminine. That's the way the Bible describes them. I'm sorry if I burst your balloon, but that's just the truth. Angels are described as being masculine and immortal. They're described as being spirit beings, and the Bible describes them as innumerable. In other words, angels are in order, not a family. In other words, they don't, they don't reproduce. They, they have no ancestry, no posterity. They're just there. God made them as they are. He made them an order. One of those angels by the name of Lucifer, which means the bearer of light, rebelled against God. And in Ezekiel chapter 28, the Lord describes the fall of Lucifer. Now, we don't have time this morning to read all of this, but if you'll go to Ezekiel 28 later on, and you'll see that as the Lord is addressing the king of Tyrus, and as he speaks to this historical figure, he does so in such a way that he also addresses the subject of Satan. And that's, by the way, that's not uncommon for God to present the truth to us in, in such a manner. He, he often does that. So what might have a historical application on one hand also has another application. The same thing's true of the Lord Jesus Christ. You go back and you begin to read in the Psalms, for example, and in many instances what speaks about David historically speaks about Jesus Christ prophetically, you see. 
So, so don't think of that as something that is unusual. But understand that your enemy was created. He is not a creator. He was created. You need to understand that because we keep thinking about the power of the devil. And indeed, he is a powerful, uh, a powerful being, but he's not all powerful. Understand that. But we see not only his creation, when we turn to Isaiah chapter number 14, we see his crime. Isaiah 14 describes his crime, and if you begin reading in verse 12, you might want to turn there and just notice the five things that led to his crime against God. First of all, there was the pride, of course, described in Ezekiel. His heart was lifted up with pride. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, and you can trace pride all the way back to Satan. I mean, all of a sudden, he thought himself as being something better and more important than what he really was. But while his pride is described in Ezekiel, his purpose is described here in Isaiah. And notice here, listen to what he says, I will ascend into heaven. In other words, I want God's place. Now, listen, he already had access to heaven, but he wanted authority over heaven. In other words, he wanted to take over. So he said, I will ascend into heaven. Next, he says, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. So not only did he want God's place, he wanted God's power. He wants to rule over all of creation. And then he said, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. In other words, he wanted God's position. So he wants God's place, God's power, God's position, because mountains are often referred to in the Bible in reference to government. And it's like Satan saying here, you know, I want to rule over all, including God himself. And notice what he says next. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Now he's wanting God's prominence. The prominence of God, we think about the clouds, for example, and so many times the clouds are used in the Bible to speak about God's mystic presence or God's glory. And he says, you know, I'm going to ascend above the heights of the clouds. And then, now get this, because this really sums it all up. Not only did he want God's place and God's power and his position and his prominence, but notice He wants God's person. He said, I will be like the Most High. I want to be God. So that's the crime. The rebellion against God. Then we see the calamity. And let me tell you, the crime of sin always brings a calamity of some sort. And it was true in the case of Satan. Ezekiel tells us that he was cast out of heaven. There's two things you need to remember. Number one, he and those other angels that followed him were cast out of heaven. Secondly, not only was he cast out of heaven, but he was confined to earth and its atmosphere. I understand there's a sense in which, uh, in which Satan still has access to God. That is, communication with God. But his ability to control is now limited 
to this earth and the atmospheric heaven. And that's why he's called the God of this world and the prince of the power of the air. Talking about the atmosphere. So Satan is now confined to this earth and the atmosphere. So that's the calamity of the crime that he committed against God. The calamity is what? He's cut off from God. Does that sound familiar? What happened to Adam when he sinned? God said in the day that you eat thereof, you shall die. That, that very day, not later on, but that day you're going to die. And the very day that Adam partook of the forbidden fruit, the very day that Adam rebelled against God, Adam died spiritually. Oh, he was very much alive physically, but he began to die physically at that time, but he died spiritually. You see, death is separation. As the body without the spirit is dead, even so, the person that is without God is spiritually dead. So now Satan is confined, as it were, to this earth and the atmospheric heaven. That's the enemy that we face. And we need to know something about his character. First of all, based on everything I've already said, it's easy to see. The first thing you notice about his character is that he is depraved. He's depraved. You see that in the names that are given to him. He's called Satan. That means adversary. He's called the devil and Apollyon and Beelzebub and Belial and the dragon and the serpent and the tormentor and the liar and a murderer and a deceiver. And so all of these various names that are given to him all tell us that he is a depraved Person, But not only do we see it in his names, we see it also in the nature of his works. Remember, he deceived Eve, he tempted Christ, he opposes God's work, and he hinders God's servants. And you look at everything the devil does is always with the intent to destroy. So he is depraved. He's deceptive. The Bible says that he's more subtle than any beast of the field. And that word simply means he's, he's crafty. So he's depraved, he's deceptive, and then he's destructive. He caused Adam to fall, Cain to kill, Abraham to lie, Lot to lust, Samson to stumble, Achan to steal, Saul to hate, David to sin, Absalom to rebel. And listen, and it goes on and on and on all the way through the Bible. You see the destruction of Satan everywhere you look. And i got to tell you, listen, folks, he's not through yet. He's not out to frighten you. He's not out just to hurt you. The devil's intent is to literally destroy you. That's what he wants. That's what his plan is. So that brings us down to this matter of the contention. The contention that exists b between you and your, your satanic enemy. Paul reveals the nature of this warfare. Notice in verse 12, and he says here that we wrestle not against what? Flesh and blood. 
You know, too many times we look at our problems from purely a human level, and that's a big mistake. A lot of times people are involved in our problems, that's true, but listen, that's not the root of the problem. People are involved. Satan uses people, that's true, but the real enemy is Satan. So the battle is not between you and your boss at work. The battle is not between me and you or you and anybody else. The real battle is between you and Satan. Notice Paul says it is against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And it's evident from this that Satan and his host, that is the fallen angels, that they are powerful and they're organized. And notice the words that Paul uses here, and that's a whole different study, and I'm not going into that. But I want you to notice they are of different ranks, and they're also of different works. In other words, they've been assigned to different things to do, as it were. But they're highly organized and extremely powerful. There's a lot of speculation concerning this matter. A lot of folks wondering about this worldwide conspiracy. Maybe you watch Jesse Ventura, for example, and what have you. And a lot of people, even as they talk about this particular verse of Scripture, they get all caught up in this thing about world leaders being controlled by demons. And I can't even begin to tell you how many times I've had people down through the years ask me about the Illuminati. Brother Stone, what do you think about the Illuminati? Do you think it's real? Do you, what, what do you think? Uh, and, and, and on and on. Let me tell you something. There's a whole lot of stuff that you and I do not understand. There's a lot of things, a lot of ideas, a lot of opinions that I might have in regards to the Illuminati and a lot of other things, by the way. But it's not my job, not my responsibility, and I, I do not have even the freedom to get up here before you and to preach about speculation. My responsibility is to preach the truth of God's Word. And I could say a lot of things about my opinion. I mean, we get to talking about politics. And I, I want to tell I, let me just say this, folks. Let me tell you, if you and I really knew what was going on, because you look at it as purely a Democrat and Republic kind of a thing, you know, the Republicans this and the Democrats that and so forth, and we, you know, we, we've got our favorite candidates. Let me tell you something. If you really knew what was going on, if you knew how far this goes uh, in the spirit world, you'd, you probably wouldn't sleep tonight. There's a whole lot more to it, it's what I'm trying to tell you. And Paul's making that perfectly clear right here in these verses. This is a spiritual warfare that we are involved in. Now, basically, that's all you need to know about it. Don't get caught up in this nonsense of trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. You don't know, and I don't know, and nobody else knows at this time. I saw just this morning already... Some group has already started plastering billboards about they know the exact day 
of the return of Jesus Christ. I, I believe they said May the 21st of, of this next year. Do you understand how many people have been saying that same thing down through the years? They've been writing books about it and all kinds of nonsense. And this preacher says, oh, we've sat down and we've gone through all of the Bible, you know, and we've studied it out and we've calculated it and we've got it right down to the very day. Well, guess what? Everybody else that ever tried to do that has been wrong about it. And i got news for him. He's wrong about it. Not even the angels of heaven know when the Lord is coming back. We don't have that information. I'm saying all of that for a very good reason, and that is don't you get caught up in trying to examine the spirit world because all you're going to do is get yourself in trouble. I'm telling you, this is nothing to play with. If you've got a Ouija board in your home, you better throw it away and get that and the horoscopes and all of that other garbage out of your house because you don't know what you're messing with. It'll destroy you. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but what? But we are in a spiritual warfare, and our adversary is Satan. So, here's all of these things we don't know, and we're not allowed to speculate. So, what do we know? Now, let me wrap this all up. Here's what we know. First John 5 and verse number 19 says, The whole world lieth in wickedness. So, we know that much, right? Why does the whole world lie in wickedness? Because Satan is the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air. And so the Bible says the whole world lieth in wickedness. What else do we know? We know, according to the Bible, 2 Timothy 3.13, it's going to get worse, not better. A lot of people have this idea they're just given enough time and enough money and the right person, people in the right places in Washington that we can solve all of these problems and create some glorious utopia here on earth. Nonsense. You'll never experience anything like that until King Jesus comes and He reigns on this earth. So we know that the whole world lies in wickedness. We know that it's going to get worse and not better. We know that there are evil spirits contending against the saints. We know all of, all of those things, those are facts based on the Bible. Now listen, that's all you need to know about it. That's all you need to know is that you are engaged in a spiritual warfare with an enemy that's out to destroy you. So... In conclusion, listen carefully, the conflict is real. The conflict's real. It's a spiritual conflict and it's real and your enemy is powerful. Peter describes him as being like a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. He's powerful. You're no match for the devil. You ever see these television preachers, you know, get on TV and start talking about stuff like this, you know, you devil, I rebuke you, blah, 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 blah. You know, it'd be a whole lot better if they'd just sit down and shut up because all they're doing is getting themselves deeper in trouble. 
you have absolutely no power whatsoever over Satan. None. Zilch. Zero. None. You're no match for the devil. I don't know why it takes some people so long to realize that. Our only line of defense is the Lord Jesus Christ. Greater is He that's in you than he that's in the world. We are weak, but He is strong. That's where our hope is. That's why Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. You see, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, verse 8. And it tells us that He came to deliver us from this present evil world. In Jesus Christ, we find absolutely everything that we need to enable us to live victoriously here in this old wicked world. You don't have to live a defeated life. It's possible for us to be more than conquerors through the Lord Jesus Christ. He shed His precious blood. He rose up victorious over death, hell, and the grave. He's given us His Word to direct our steps. He's put within us the same Holy Spirit that raised Him up from the dead to enable us. And He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ever even ask or think. We sing that old song, Victory in Jesus. I heard an old, old story. Amen? There is victory in Jesus, folks. That's the only place you're going to find victory. You've got a real enemy, a powerful enemy, an unseen enemy that's out to destroy you, destroy your family and everything you hold dear. But it does not have to end in defeat. You can have victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember just a bit earlier here in this same letter, Paul said to the Ephesians, he said, Be ye filled with the Spirit. And by that he meant for us to yield ourselves to the control of the Holy Spirit. That, that, that's what... The filling of the Holy Spirit, that's what it's all about. It's not some mystical thing that's going to cause you to jabber in some unknown tongue or language and roll in the floor and jump over the pews. It has nothing to do with that at all. Being filled with the Spirit means that I yield myself to the control of the Holy Spirit, and He empowers me to accomplish the will of God in my life. In other words, here's what I'm trying to say. He is the agent of change, not us. It's not a matter of us saying, well, you know, that preacher is right. I'm, I, I'm going to change my ways. No, you're going to fail every single time. It's not a matter of you and I trying to change our lives. It's a matter of us being changed. So, what kind of change does the Holy Spirit make in our life? When we surrender ourselves to Him, we don't have to guess about it, for the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace, gentleness and long-suffering, and on and on. And Paul gives a list of nine different graces that make up the fruit of the Spirit. 
And in those nine things, you'll find the very things that the world are in most desperate need of. We can be victorious. Think of the opposite of each one of those. Go home, turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, begin reading verse 22, and just look at the opposite of love. Well, we got a real problem with hate, don't we, today? The only ant, listen, the, the only answer, the only solution to the problem of our hatred one for another is love, and the only place that love comes from is the working of the Holy Spirit in our life, and the joy and the peace and all the rest of it. Have you given Him control of your life? Have you trusted Christ as your own dear Savior? Do you know today, if you died, that you'd go to be with the Lord? If not, you can trust Him this morning and leave here with that blessed assurance that as a child of God, if you die, you're going to enter into the presence of the Lord. And we encourage you to do that. And if you're here... Maybe you've been saved, but you've not been obedient to what God would have you to do. We're going to invite you to come in this morning to yield yourself to His control. For some of you, that might be baptism. We've got folks awaiting baptism. And as we stand, we're going to ask them to go ahead and be dismissed to the dressing rooms and uh, prepare for the baptism. If you're here and God's speaking to your heart about anything whatsoever, why don't you come? It might be just the need to come and pray this morning, but let God have His way. As we all stand together, as we lift our voice in song and we extend to you this invitation, and if we can be of any help whatsoever, please let us know. Father in heaven, we just thank you for your word and the clear guidance that it gives, for the encouragement that it brings. And I pray now that you'll speak to our hearts. And Lord, help us without any hesitation or question or reservation. Help us right at this very moment to yield ourselves to your control in our life, that we might be vessels fit for the Master's use. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. So now as we sing, what would God have you to do this morning? All to Him I freely give. Now think about what you're singing. I surrender not just a little bit. I surrender all. Thank you so much for your attention. You may be seated. Tim's going to lead us in, in a song, and right after that we'll have our baptismal service.